Hey, this is Ken at Capital Advantage Tutoring, and it's my job to get you past the Series 7 exam and the SA exam. And this actually might even help the 65 and 66 in the investment vehicle. So this covers a lot. This might be the most important video you try to watch, like the day before the test or the day of, because it's little snippets of stuff I keep saying over and over again, but I'm going to put a little background and context to each one of these things. Shouldn't be too long, but let's get into it. And I'm outside because I'm still on tomato watch, protecting them from those damn chipmunks. Felt like an old man. My wife's in the city. She decided to spend a few more days in the city. Oh, you think I should take that personally? Oh. Um. Anyway, so I'm out here doing this. I got there doing work on the house in the back. A lot of fun stuff. Okay. So let's get into it. So let's talk about the bond fixed income stuff first, right? Okay. So I always say rich people buy munis, poor people buy corporates. That's like I, I that's like a mantra I say all the time. Then videos on it. Understand rich people buy munis. Why? Because what do we know about municipal bonds? Municipal bonds are tab the interest is tax-free from the Fed. Fuck the Fed. So their interest is exempt from federal taxation. So if you buy a muni bond, you will um you will not pay taxes on the federal level. You might pay on the state, depending where it is. But on this thing, rich people buy munis, poor people buy corporates. Because mm -hmm. rich people pay higher taxes, so they have to worry about taxes. So if they're going to worry about taxes, well, they'll try to buy things that are tax efficient, tax free, stuff like that. Like if you're in the 10% tax bracket, yeah, taxes suck. They do. But they're not as important as someone who's in the 35 or 40. It's like the, if you're in the 35 or 40%, 39.6, whatever it is, you're more worried about taxes than someone who's in the 10%. So, uh, and, and also remember, corporate bonds are issued with a higher coupon than munis. So at some point, buying the corporate is too taxable where the muni is better. And that's where we do the math. I'm not doing the math on this. I'm just explaining that rich people buy munis, poor people buy corporates. Remember that. And the reason is, is because munis are federally tax free. Okay. The other one is long and low, baby. Long and low. What does that mean? That means just talking about bond volatility, the price volatility. What's interesting is that when they talk about interest rates, it's the opposite. So long and low, remember that long and low, baby, long-term bonds move more than medium or short-term bonds and low coupon or low price bonds move more than medium price, medium coupon, stuff like that. So long and low, baby, remember longer the bond, the lower the coupon, the more it'll move. So the lower the coupon, the deeper the discount, the more the bond will fluctuate. The lower the coupon, the deeper the discount, the more the bond will fluctuate and zeros move the most. Okay. Remember that I get a question all the time and they go, oh, hey, um, Oh, hey, they don't go, hey, nobody says, oh, hey, I say, oh, hey, because I'm an idiot. They look at a question and it goes, which which is the least volatile? And it's a zero VRDO, a couple other ones. And every goddamn time they say zero coupon. And I just want to blow my head out. OK, zero coupons move the most, by the way, on that question. VRDOs really have no interest rate risk because, look, we have a VRDO, variable rate demand obligation. If interest rates go to up, this goes up, too. If interest rates go down, the coupon changes with the rates. So the price never really changes. Plus, the DO part means you can sell it back to the issuer at par. So no one cares. If a bond is trading at par, all yields are the same. Remember, a bond at par, all yields are the same. So if you buy a bond at 1,000, a 10% bond at 1,000, all your yields are the, all your yields are the same. Way too many Ys for me. A bond at par, all yields are the same. Now, yes, in real world, maybe the call price makes it higher. But on this test, for the most part, all, so if you buy a par bond, the coupon, the maturity, everything is equal. 
Now, when we're talking about bonds being called, right? Premium bonds get called. Why? So premiums get called discounts don't. Because if I'm an issuer and a bond's trading at a premium, that means I issued a bond at a rate and the rates went down. But so my bond went up in price, right? So I go, wow, I can issue bonds at a lower rate than I'm paying now. So it's like refinancing. I'm going to issue a bond at a lower rate and then use that money to pay off the old bond. And now I save some money. Kind of like you in a couple of years when interest rate, mortgage rates are so high and you go, wow, the rates are dropping. I'll refinance to save some money. It's the same thing. You're trying to save money. So premium bonds get called. Discounts don't. Why? Well, a discount bond wouldn't be called because, hell, if I issue a bond at 4% and now rates are 7 or 8%, no freaking way am I going to refinance it. I'm super happy that I'm borrowing money at 4% when everyone else said buy it at 8. I'm getting cheap money. It's cost, not costing me a lot. Like all the people who issued bonds in like November, maybe October, November, December, they're pretty happy right now. Because even though their bonds are lower price, which they don't really care, they're paying a much lower rate than everyone else. Now, let's talk about premiums and discounts for a second, right? So we already know that the lower the coupon, the deeper the discount, the more the bond fluctuates. They might ask you about accretion. So this is what I tell everyone. To determine how much we have to accrete, it's the distance from par. Like it's the same math, whether it's a premium or discount. Remember, premiums is if it's over 100 or over par and discounts if it's under par. So if you buy a bond for 1,200, it's 200 from par. So that's the amount that gets divided by the number of years. If you buy a bond for 900, that's 100 below par. So that's how much you have to do, you have divide the 100 by. So I say the distance from par, the distance from par divided by the number of years that tells you how much you have to accrete or amortize each year. And remember, this other thing I always say, remember, OID, you must accrete. OID, you must accrete. What does that mean? All OIDs, you must accrete. Now, if it's a muni, you don't give a shit because you're not going to pay taxes. It's interest income. But if it's a corporate or treasury, that accretion amount is taxable. On the premium side, only munis have to amortize. Amortize is dropping the cost basis down. So OIDs, all OIDs, original issue discount, basically zero coupons have to be accreted. Secondary market discounts don't. So I try to remember what I have to do. What do I have to do? Like I'm married. What do I have to do? The rest is kind of negotiable. So <clears throat> OID, zero coupon, I have to accrete. There's no, the IRS requires you to do that. On the premium side, only munis do. Corporates and treasuries do not have to. So if you buy a corporate or treasury, you do not have to amortize. But if you buy a muni at a premium, you must amortize every year. Whenever you're thinking about movements and stuff like that, remember the coupon never changes. The only time the coupon actually changes is if it's a um, VRDO or an ARS, I guess, if you want to say. But this coupon never changes. So that's why when you buy a bond at 5% and rates go to 7 it's still paying 5 which the, the issuer is happy, but the price of the bond is going to be less valuable, so it's going to drop in price. But remember, the coupon never changes, okay? Even on a tips, when we talk about tips, what's the deal with that? Okay, tips, when they adjust for inflation, we have I have a videos on that, When they and I'll attach it. Um, when we have a tip, if inflation goes up, the coupon doesn't change, the par value does, okay? So if you have a tip, so 5%, a 5% bond trading at 1,000, inflation goes up by 10%, the 5% doesn't change, the par value goes up by 10% to 1,100, and then now it's 5% of 1100 which is 55 bucks. And again, I have a better video on it, but I'm just explaining coupon doesn't change, okay? And other than a VRDO. On these kind of crazy notes, right? So if you hear them saying what kind of bond, and we're talking about tips, you don't pick the tips unless they specifically mention purchase and power risk or inflation or any of that. You do not 
pick them, okay? So what I'm saying here is that if you say a bunch of choices and you say, oh, I, I like tips, if they don't mention inflation in the question or some sort of version about, I want to increase my buy, not my buying power, my purchasing power, whatever it is, if I, if I don't mention that at all, then don't go with tips. Because remember, a tip, since it has a better quality, like it has a better quality for more advanced, more stuff for the, um, I can't think because I'm old, for the investor, okay, more stuff for the investor, they're going to lower the coupon. So if you have a choice of a treasury, say it's 4% treasury, the tips would be like three and a half maybe because they're offering something, okay? They're offering something for you. So again, anytime we do something for the investor, it's going to lower the coupon or increase the price. Mm -hmm. Remember, when we're talking about taxable stuff, entities tax themselves. What does that mean? Okay, so corporates get taxed all the, all the time, no matter what. But as far as what is taxable versus what isn't, if you buy a treasury, the Fed taxes treasuries. The states do not. Entities tax themselves, okay? So if I have a treasury, it's going to pay taxes on the, I'm going to pay taxes on the federal level, not the state. Now, if I buy a muni, I'm going to pay state, I'm going to pay taxes on the state but not the Fed. And I may not even have to pay on the state. And I may have to pay on the federal if it's an AMT bond, but let's go with the, the rule. Entities tax themselves. So if you buy a treasury bond, you buy a treasury bond, you're going to pay federal taxes. If you buy a muni bond, you might pay state taxes. You may not if you're in your own state, but just remember entities tax themselves. Feds tax the treasuries, states tax the munis. Now, here's a little tip that I just say. If you're looking at a question, it always makes me laugh when I say it, and people do too. Um, once in a while, I get nuggets of funny shit in here. Um, whenever I see a question and I can't figure out the answers, okay? I look at the four choices and I have no idea what it's asking. If convertible's there, I take it. Like if I truly can't figure it out, if I truly can't go, I don't know which one it is, and convertible's a choice, I'll take it. I think it's right more than it isn't. This is like the old pick B, whatever. But I'm just saying, if you see convertible, and you can't, again, if you're pretty sure it's something else, go with that. But if you truly are like, I'm flipping a coin. If you see convertible, take that. That's probably right more than it is. Income funds are good. Income bonds are bad. Again, income bonds are bad. Income funds are good. So if somebody goes, oh, they want income, and it's really just a layup between income funds and income bonds, it's income funds. Because income bonds don't actually pay. It's like a, it's a label, right? They only pay when the company has a certain amount of income. So that so it's kind of it's 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 also called the um adjustment bond. See, brain doesn't work right. So an adjustment bond also. So it, what happens is they only pay when the company has income, and it's usually a sign of like a company's not doing so well, right? Because it's um it's got a bankruptcy and they don't have the money, so they want to get a little room. So they say, listen, we're going to change it up, and we're going to say we're going to only pay when we have money. The only time they would do that is to been a little bit of trouble. So income bonds are not good. They're never really suitable for anyone other than like hedge funds and special situation funds. You really never, very rarely will an income bond be suitable for a retail customer. Income funds, all day long. You know, remember, this isn't the end all be all of stuff, but it's just little things to remember like the day before the test. Okay. So like equities. Okay. Why do we buy them? We buy them for capital appreciation, blah, blah, blah. Okay. Equity, the best tool for fighting inflation. There is nothing better than equities for fighting inflation. Now, hyperinflation screws everyone over, as we're seeing. But best tool for fighting inflation, why is that? Well, equities average between 9 and 10% every year. And inflation normally in a normal year will be 2% a year. So it kicks the shit out of it, okay? So remember that. Best tool for fighting inflation is equities. 
than gold and stuff like that, or anything that invests in equity, right? So variable annuities, mutual funds, ETFs, ETNs, technically, anything that invests in equity or uses equity as their base asset, that would be also. Okay, remember, when, they, when they're asking a question about suitability a little bit and they're doing about orders, so remember, stops protect, limits don't. Stop orders protect, limits don't. So if they say, oh, I want to protect my position, yeah, fucking do a put or a call. But if they don't, if that's not a choice, then you do you do a sell stop if you're long and you a buy stop if you're short. So remember, stops protect, limits don't. Stops protect, limits don't. Now, if we're doing quoting, right, They everyone's like, oh, who buys what, at what price and all that? Just remember this. You buy at the ask, you sell at the bid, okay? So if I'm going to buy something in market order, I'm going to buy it at the ask. Why? Because that's where people are willing to sell it. The ask is saying, hey, I'm willing to sell it at 45. Well, if I say I want to pay 44, guess what I'm not doing? I'm not fucking buying it because the person said they'll sell it at 45. And on the in the markets, the ask is the lowest price anyone in the world at this particular moment in time is willing to sell it. So you cannot buy it less than that because no one's willing to sell it less than that. They may change your mind in 10 seconds, but right now at this moment, if you want to buy stock, you have to buy the ask. The other way around, you want to sell stock. You have to sell it at the bid. You can only sell it at the bid, okay? Sell at the bid, buy at the ask. So the bid is the highest price in the whole world at this moment in time that anyone is willing to advertise that they want to buy it. So say it's bid, bid at 44, and you say, I want to sell it at 44 and a half. You're not going to sell it because no one's willing to pay that price at that moment in time. It could change, but right now, if you want to sell it, 44 is the price. And, and if it's offered at 45 and you want to buy it, 45 is the price. And again, that could change. They try to confuse things in the books with the whole what the market maker can do or not. It's not that the market maker can buy at, that, at the bid and sell at the ask because you can only buy where people are willing to sell and you're only willing to sell where people can buy. It's that market makers are more likely to buy it at the bid and sell it at the ask because they advertise, like, hey, I'm willing to buy a 44. Well, if a seller comes in, they're going to sell it at 44 and they get to buy it there. But if they really want to buy it right now, they got to follow the same rules. They got to pay the ask. So if someone wants to buy something right now, you must pay the ask, okay? And if you want to sell things right now, you must sell it at the bid. So market makers don't have special rules that don't apply to them. It's just that they're out there bidding and offering advertising, so they're more likely to buy at their bid and sell at their ask because they're saying, I'm willing to do it, and people may come to them. Kind of like you go to a flea market. I put my chairs out. I want to sell a bunch. Of, I use this chair all, all the time. I put my chairs out in a booth and say, I'm willing to pay one, sell them for 150 Well, I'm more likely to sell them at 150 than someone who doesn't advertise that you're doing it. I'm in my home. I hope somebody comes in and says, I'll buy my chairs for 150 Nobody gives a shit. Nobody's going to find it, right? So if I'm advertising, then I have a chance of selling it. But there's no guarantee. Also, as far as investments go, as far as investments go, on this exam, not real world, on this exam, anything under five years, you stay away from equity. Anything under five years, you lean toward bonds, stuff like that. Because as much as bonds are like they're a long-term thing, they're not good for long-term. Equity is good for long-term. You can take more risk. With long-term time horizon, you can take a lot more risk, okay? So anything under five years, you're going to go with bonds or something like that, maybe even preferreds, but not equity, okay? Now, real world, totally different world. That's when I have some of my students who are older and they've been trading for a while or investing. That's not true. I said, on this exam, you can't think what you would do, what we, we do. You have to think, what does FINRA want? And to recommend someone who has a four-year time horizon, to recommend to someone who doesn't know anything about the business to buy common stock is kind of irresponsible, not what a prudent man would do. Okay, so let's have a little fun with options. But before we start, please, if you like this, like it. 
If you like it, hit the like button. If you don't like it, hit the dislike button. I think they got two buttons. You can do either one. Even if you fucking think I'm annoying as hell and I curse too much, hit the dislike button, whatever. And then if you don't think I'm embarrassing, go share this to your friends who are about to take the test. It'll help. Little things, right? Because right the day before the test, you shouldn't be going, you know, reading massive things and taking tests. Little stuff. Pick up little points here and there. Pick it up. Nickels in front of a steamroller. Okay, now, talk about options. So remember a couple things. You know, when you buy a call, you're bullish. If you buy a put, you're bearish, all that stuff. I'm not going to get into that. We've done that a million times. So remember, you buy for protection, you sell for income. So if you ever see the word income, you know that you're selling an option. And if you see the word protection, you know that you're buying an option. There's kind of no if, ends, or buts on that, right? So there's no changing that. So if you're a long stock, okay, if you're long stock, you buy a put for protection, you sell a call for income. If you're short stock, you buy a call for protection, you sell a put for income. Remember that, okay? God, it's amazing when I take the glasses off, how freaking weird I look. When I went 50 years without glasses, and now I wear them all the time, and I looked we- I don't know, who knows? I- it's just me rambling. Okay, so, so, remember, buy for protection, sell for income. Now, yeah, if you buy a call or buy a put on its own, it's speculation, but I think we know that. Now, call up, put down. People say that all the time. You're like, what does that mean? Okay, it's not about bull bear, because... Buying a call is bullish, selling a call is bearish. It's about two things. Break even. When you have a call or put by itself, call up, put down. Call up means you're going to do strike plus premium for the um, break even, and that doesn't matter, buy or sell. And then the puts, it's down, strike minus. So strike minus premium, regardless of buy or sell the put. Nobody cares. Okay. Now, remember, when you're doing calculations, break even is everything. Break even is everything, Okay. Always find the break-even. Obviously, if they're saying bullish or bearish, I don't care. But for the most part, getting the break-even solves a lot of problems. Always find, try to find the break-even. It's kind of the way it goes, right? That's the easiest. That's what we want to do. Find the break-even. And then if you go bullish or bearish, then at least you know if it's a profit or loss, right? Because if you have the break-even here and you're bullish, any market price up here is a, is profitable and any anything below is a loss, okay? it's There's not brain surgery. And if break-even's here and it's bearish, anything down here is a profit. If the market price is down here, it's a profit. Anything up there is, is a loss. Okay. Um, I should have gone back to this. So I'm going to go back to this. Call up, put down. Two things it works for. One, break-evens. If it's a call, buy or sell, it's strike plus premium. If it's a put, buy or sell, doesn't matter, it's strike minus premium. The other part of call up, put down is the intrinsic or in the money. Intrinsic and in the money are the same fucking thing. Intrinsic and in the money are the same thing. So if you have a call, anything up here, buy or sell doesn't matter. And it's not about making money. In the money has nothing to do with making money. It has to do whether it would be exercised. So a call, any market price above, like the little jazz fingers or whatever they call them. Okay. Um, <clears throat> anything above the strike price is, what is it the jazz fingers, right? Bring it on, right? Or whatever. Okay. Now, spirit fingers. That's what it is. Spirit fingers. That's great. Okay. So now, call. Anything above the call strike is in the money or intrinsic. So if you have a 50 call and the stock's trading at 55, it's $5 in the money or $5 of intrinsic. And if it's below it, that's out of the money. Nobody cares how far out of the money it is. It's just out. And if the stock's trading at the price, it's called at the strike price, it's at the money. And on a put, it's exactly the opposite. Put down. Anything below the strike is in the money and anything above is out. doesn't matter by yourself. So that's why call up, put down works for break even and the in the money. Okay, now when you're opening an account, DATO 15. What does that mean? DATO 15. D-A-T-O. 
Dato 15, disclosure, disclosure doc, the option disclosure doc written by the OCC has to be given before you do anything, before you make any recommendations or talk about options. Yeah, general educational shit, nobody cares, right? But for the most part, if you're going to actually try to solicit or recommend or anything, they have to have the ODD. That's the D. Then A is the approval from a principal, usually an ROP, registered option principal, series four. Then we do the trade. Then you can trade. Once it's approved, you can start trading. And then the options agreement, which is really just listing what you can and can't do on all the rules, you, that has to be returned within 15 days of approval. You can trade during those 15 days, right? So remember, DATO 15 when opening an option account. D-A-T-O, DATO 15. Now, little uh, tangent. Disclosure docs always come first. Anytime you see the word disclosure or anything like that, that comes before anything else. It's not like you get to do the disclosure doc a week later. Mm -mm. Disclosures come first. Remember that. And by the way, disclosure docs are not considered advertising because they're disclosures. They're warning you how freaking how hard margin is or how how hard options are. So that's what they're doing. They're giving you the risks. Covered and uncovered. So everyone always asks this question. Covered and uncovered both mean that you're selling an option of some sort. Okay. Whether it's covered or uncovered, you're selling an option. You're not buying the option. Covered means there's a stock position with it or another option with it. But for the most part, covered means there's a stock position with it. So if you sell a call that's naked, that's uncovered. If you buy a stock with it, it's now covered. Okay. The option's covered now. Covered and uncovered always means that you're selling an option. Selling a put, that's an uncovered put, naked put. If you're short stock, it's now covered. Okay. That's kind of where we are with that. Now, a couple other little quickie things. Um, <clears throat> Whenever I say, I always say, if you do my options, by the way, if you do the T-chart, this isn't going to help you. But if you do my options, remember, you never cross the strike price, right? So if you see 50 and the strike price is 55, once you get to 55, you kind of stop counting. It's there. That's your number. But anything beyond that, you don't care so the, because the option is either going to exercise or expire. So you're kind of, once you get to the strike price, whatever you gained or lost at that point is locked in. So that's why I say that you never cross the strike price. The market can, you don't. Um, a <clears throat> couple little quickie things. I keep saying that when you're doing break even, when you have, whenever you have two things, okay, I'm going to get stung by B Um, I'll keep, the, if I get stung, I promise to keep the, my, my screaming reaction to it. Okay. I am really going to get stung. That B is absolutely pissed off. He just came back at 31 away. Uh oh, ah, okay. So a couple things, whenever you have two options or two, anything, you got to do something, right? It is literally in my ear. Why? Okay. Let's try this again. And maybe it doesn't want me to tell the super secret. Whenever you have two things, whether it's a stock and an option or two options, okay? Remember, if they're the same, you add. If they're different, you subtract. What the hell does that mean, Ken? Okay. If you have stock and an option, if you have stock and an option, how do I know whether how to do break even? Remember, it's always stock plus or minus premium. Stock, not strike. Stock plus or minus premium. And what happens is if they're the same, meaning two buys or two sells, you add. If it's a buy and a sell, you subtract. So remember, if they're the same, you add. If they're different, you subtract. It's a rule just to follow. Now, if it's two call, and if it's two options, like buy a call, buy a put, well, they're two buys, so you add the premiums. It doesn't give you break even, but it nets out. It gives you the sum or the net of the options. So, Oh, if you're not sure what to do, just look for the actions. If it's two buys, like a buy, call, buy, a put, you can add the premiums. If it's a spread, which is buy, a call, sell, a call, buy, and a sell, you're going to subtract the premiums. So remember, the same you add, the different you subtract. 
Okay. Now, okay, if you see two buys, buy a call, buy a put, or buy stock, buy put. If you ever see two purchases, two buys, your max gain is unlimited. There are other things that are unlimited, but that's it. So what else could be unlimited? Buying stock, buying a call, long straddle. Those are things that are unlimited, okay? Those things have unlimited gain. On the, again, so if you have two buys or two sells, two buys always means unlimited gain. Two sells is always unlimited loss. So if you short stock, short a call, short straddle, they all have unlimited loss. And a covered covered put, which is short stock, short a put, that's the two sells, you have unlimited loss. Also on this, EPIC. Remember EPIC, E-P-I-C. Exporters by puts, importers by calls. Why? Because if I'm an exporter, a U.S. exporter, and I'm selling stuff to another country, I'm worried the other country's currency will drop, so I'm going to buy puts on their currency. And if I'm an importer, I'm worried that the foreign currency will go up, so I'm going to buy calls on that foreign currency. So now, part of my issue here is that sometimes I go, wait, what do I do? So what if it's a foreign exporter? Just do the opposite. Find out whatever the U.S. would do and do and do the opposite. So if a foreign export, if a U.S. exporter will buy a put, a foreign exporter will buy a call. And remember, it's always on the foreign currency. Why? Because America is the shit, right? So every other currency revolves around us. We're the sun. We don't move. We are always a dollar. Every other currency moves around us. So we can only buy options on the other currency. So a U.S. exporter would buy puts and a foreign exporter would buy calls, both on the foreign currency. Okay, so now let's talk about some little quick hitters. Okay, time horizon is everything, right? So time horizon is everything. When we're talking about suitability, we're always talking about time horizon, how long the person has. So if the person has two years or 10 years or 30 years, that drives 90% of what you're going to invest with them. Long-term, it's equity. Short-term, it's bonds. Like I said before, really short-term is money markets. It's like cash, stuff like that. So you will not ever ignore time horizon. If You always have to find 20 or 30 or 40, whatever the time horizon is. We care about that. Now, let's say they have a 15-year-old. And you say, what's their time horizon for college? It's not three years because you're not paying for the first year of college. You're paying for all four. So it's three to seven years. That's the time horizon. Okay. When we're doing suitability and they want to know like kind of where we are, what we should do as far as percentages go. Always, A lot of people do 100 minus their age in equity, which is fine. I just think easier, just as a ballpark, their age in bonds or fixed income. So whatever age they're in, you kind of put them, in, that's the ballpark, that's the base of what we're going to put them in fixed income. So if I am 30 years old, I'm probably going to be 30% bonds, 70% equity. When I'm 70 years old, I'm going to be 70% bonds, 30% equity. And then you adjust. If they're conservative, you go more bonds, less equity. If they're risk, if they're aggressive, you go more equity, less bonds. So it's just a ballpark base number. Okay. We already did Epic. I'm not going to worry about that. Everything. Now, remember, everything that you do, everything settles T plus two. Everything. What does that mean? Trade plus two business days. You buy it on Monday, settles on Wednesday. What does settlement mean? That's when people, that's when the broker dealers settle up the money. That's when the broker dealers will settle up and say, okay, we're paying for, we're going to pay for the trade and we're going to receive the money. That is settlement. Everything settles T plus two except for two things options and treasuries okay everything settles t plus two except for options and tre treasuries everything settles t plus two except for treasuries and options now treasuries when you buy them in the market they're going to settle t plus one same thing with options options settle t plus one when you trade them now the exercise is a little different so if you have a stock option equity option 
when you buy it, it's T plus one, but when you exercise, meaning you're getting the stock or delivering it, it's T plus two. Index options are T plus one across the board. Whether you buy it or exercise it, it's T plus one. If you hear the word safety, protection of principle, risk averse, any of that, treasuries is your go-to. If it's not there, then you'll find something else super safe. But if you ever see protection of principle, safety, you're always going with treasuries every time. Couple little things I've seen on the tests. Stock splits do not affect PE. What is PE ratio? PE ratio is price divided by earnings. So what happens? Say you have a stock of stocks trading at 10, the earnings per share is a dollar. 10 to one, we're good. If there's a stock split, a two for one stock split, the stock is now five, the earnings per share is 50, it's still 10 to one. So PE is not affected by stock splits, okay? Or stock dividends. Both market price and earnings per share are, but the PE, because it's relationship, go together. Now, as far as everyone asks this, annuities versus insurance, remember this. Annuities pay you until you die. Insurance pays when you die. That's the difference. They're both done by insurance companies, so it's confusing. Confusing. But insurance pays you when you die. Now, it doesn't pay you because you're dead, but it pays somebody. So insurance pays you somebody when you die. And then annuities, you get paid every, every month until you die, like a pension or something like that. Okay. As far as we're concerned, annuities are non-qualified. What does non-qualified mean? It means it's one, it's not sponsored by your corporation. And two, it's non-deductible, which means the money goes in post-tax. It grows tax deferred. That's fine. You pay no taxes as it's growing, but it goes in after tax. So when you take it out, you only pay tax on the growth portion, not the what you put in because you already pay taxes on that. And the payout, the monthly payout is going to be partially taxable. So if you have a non-qualified annuity, when you get paid out every month, part of it's going to be taxable as a return to principal. Part is going to be income, which is taxable at ordinary income because everything about retirement accounts is ordinary income. Things that don't affect cost basis. One, covered calls. If you buy stock and sell a covered call, your cost basis is your cost basis. Accrued interest, accrued interest on a bond. Nobody gives a shit. It doesn't matter. So that doesn't affect it. And then any kind of cash dividend. If you get a cash dividend, you buy stock at 50 and you get a cash dividend for a dollar, for a dollar, your cost basis is still 50. But if you have a commission, if you buy stock at 50 and you pay a $1 commission, 51 is your cost basis. And remember, whenever the only way to be taxable is to have both a cost basis and a proceeds. Cost basis and proceeds. You have to have both a buy and a sell or a sell and a buy or you're not taxable. It's an unrealized gain. Now, there are three things that are capital gains or losses. One is a buy and a sell. We already talked about that. You have to have a buy and a sell. That's a capital gain. It's called a realized gain. Option expiration. If the option expires, that's either going to be a gain or a loss, depending on whether you bought it or sold it. And the third one is a mutual fund capital gains distribution. So when every mutual fund kicks out its mutual fund, its capital gains every year, that's going to be a capital gain. So mutual funds have to kick out 90% of their income every year. They're going to do quarterly dividends, which is their short-term gains and interest and dividends. And then every year they kick out their capital gains, which is from their buys and sells. So those are the things that they kick out and that's going to be a capital gain. One more thing about mutual funds. The only thing that affects NAV, remember, the only thing that affects NAV is if they pay out a dividend, not get a dividend, pay one out to the investors, or if the actual assets go up and down. If the actual assets go up and down, that would change the NAV. Okay, guys, that's part one. I have more to do. I'll probably do another in a month or so when I remember more shit because I can't remember anything. Um, please like, subscribe, share. Join me every Tuesday and Thursday 
on the live YouTube, 8.30 p.m. Thank you very much.